We went flying through the border crossing without stopping. <laughs> and we weren't planning to show passports or anything like that. There were border guards there with guns and rifles, and you just blew right by them, <laughs> chasing that balloon. It got pretty far into Mexico. I had visions of landing up in some jail in Tijuana or someplace like that. That adventure was known as the Great American Sail. That's sail, S-A-I-L, as in sailing through the sky in a hot air balloon. It's regarded as one of Ford's best and worst public relations stunts of all time. I was responsible for it, <laughs> both good and bad. <laughs> it was 1977, and Larry Weiss was the guy behind it. The idea was to set a uh, continental Guinness Book of World Records uh, hot air balloon trip in terms of speed. I want you to imagine this. The balloon was shaped like a giant light bulb, and the flame inside made it light up, and it was tied to Ford's slogan, Ford has a better idea. The balloon was like a light bulb coming on over someone's head. And it was our job to follow that balloon, track it, and be ready to you know, scoop him up. So, you know, it's streaking across the sky and you're limited to highways and trails and fields and <laughs> desert territory. Rough terrain is exactly why the chase team was driving a couple of Broncos. They were the preeminent off-road vehicle of the time. Drifting into Mexico was just one of the unexpected detours they took. The one misfortune was that nobody bothered to tell Mr. Ford what was going on. That would be Henry Ford, the second who was at the time chairman of the board. And he picked up the newspaper and saw a story about the Ford <laughs> cross-country balloon sale. <laughs> and he was not too happy that he hadn't been informed of that. So at that point, there was a blanket thrown over any further publicity that could be generated. Now that should have been it right there. I mean, when the guy whose name is on the side of the building says, shut down your little PR event, you shut it down, right? No, we didn't stop the trip. No, no, we kept going. But we stopped arranging interviews at dealerships along the way, cut off communications with the Associated Press. It became an exercise in persistence. Despite the obstacles, they kept pushing forward. We crossed through a section of Mississippi, and there were some bootleggers who started shooting at the balloon because they thought we were the feds. <laughs> Spying on their, their moonshine operations. The balloon passed by safely, eventually landing in Florida, more or less as planned. It landed in Daytona Beach on, at the start of the Daytona 500 uh, race. And they even notched a new world record. That trip was a metaphor for the life of the Bronco in the 1970s. The little truck that was always fighting a headwind 
kept pushing forward. I'm Sonari Glenton, and this is Bring Back Bronco, The Untold Story. Now, I was a kid in the late 70s, and at the time, roller skating was a very big thing. And not, you know, your cool roller blades that are in line. Those came a lot later. I'm talking the clunky ones, you know, bowling shoes with four big wheels bolted to the bottom. That's how we look smooth. But what I remember most about going roller skating isn't exactly the roller rinks. It was getting there in the first place. You see, the folks across the street, Joan and David Smith, they were my mom's best friends. And basically, they were my unofficial aunt and uncle. They would drive me and their own kids every Saturday after lunch. I remember those drives because they were in David's Bronco. And it was a giant one. It was dark green, not forest green, and not really olive green. I found out while making this podcast that it was actually called Estate Green. Now, we would all pile in the back, laughing and goofing around. But then there was this one spot on Lakeshore Drive where we'd all kind of get quiet. David would speed up just a little bit as we were going down the hill. And then at the bottom, there was a little dip and a bump. And sitting in the back seat or the way back, we would all be airborne, like six kids lifted in the air. We were like astronauts in a zero-G flight. It was amazing. That moment is what I like to think about when I hear the name Bronco. But unfortunately, not every bump in the road is that much fun. This is chapter two, Cracks in the Pavement. It's the call of the wild Ford Bronco with a heritage of proven dependability. A do-anything workhorse. It's a brand new kick. Perfect for those off-road ups and downs. V6 power no competitor can touch. You're ahead in a Ford Bronco. Bronco, 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 Bronco. I really, really like crime procedurals. So that's the way I'm tackling this podcast. Like a detective trying to solve a mystery. It's a murder case, well, kind of. You see, the victim is the Ford Bronco. It was removed from production in 1996. But why? Well, let's go back to the first sign of trouble, 1967. Okay, when you think about the top 10 songs of 1967, for me, two titles jump out. One by the Turtles and one by the Doors. You know, so happy together. Happy together describes the way the world was. And light my fire. Well, in Detroit, the match was about to be lit. So the car companies are still going like there's no tomorrow. They think roads wide open, sunshiny skies, we're going to take on the world. That's Bailey Sasoy Moore. She's my Detroit history expert. We have got huge economies. We've got tycoons of industry. We have got car brands being born, coming out, new nameplates, new dreams, new aspiring labels. By this time, the Bronco has been on the market for 18 months, and everything appears to be trending in the right direction. But that unstoppable optimism that Detroit's auto industry is basking in, that economic and social boom that the Bronco is surfing on, is about to get a punch right to the gut. So as this is sort of happening, we have 
the Vietnam War. We have conflict over um, uneven drafting numbers. African-Americans traditionally drafted at a much higher percentage than white Americans. It was systemic racism for a very long time, keeping African-Americans out of certain uh, neighborhoods, keeping them out of certain suburban cities. It was uh, pay differentials, African-Americans being paid less than white Americans. You had this real sort of understanding that things weren't fair and no one was doing anything about it. Then came the early morning hours of Sunday, July 23rd, 1967. Detroit police raided an after-hours bar on 12th Street. Now, they expected to find a handful of late-night drunks, but two local boys had just returned from the Vietnam War that day, and the place was packed with more than 80 people celebrating. The police decided to arrest everyone. It started out as a fight between residents and police, but very quickly turned into a citywide riot. A curfew was imposed, the sale of alcohol was banned, and the National Guard was called in. And on the third day, the president ordered soldiers from a nearby military base. Now, many of them had just returned from fighting in the jungles of Vietnam. Now they're being told to patrol the streets of Detroit. We have the 82nd Airborne Division and the 101st Airborne Division on the east of Woodward Avenue. It lasted five days. When it was over, 2,000 buildings had been destroyed and 7,000 people were arrested. There were 1,100 injured and 43 dead. But they didn't unite. They just left. Well, not everyone, just the middle-class whites. The 12th Street riots jump-started a social phenomenon known as white flight. White flight really speaks to the fact that between 1965 and 1985, the city of Detroit flips. It goes from being about 15% black to being, by 1985, 70% black. In 1968 alone, 80,000 people moved from downtown to the suburbs. And suddenly the population in the suburbs is bigger than the population in the city without the taxes to support the schools. And the problem becomes endemic because if you can't get your kids a good education, you're going to move somewhere you can. And with you goes your tax dollars, which means the kids left in the city, their education is getting worse. It was the start of a cycle that ripped the heart from Detroit. Less than a decade removed from being one of the greatest cities in the world, it was now a burnt-out shell. So there's your history lesson. So now what does that have to do with the Bronco? Well, this. In some ways, 1967 was a long time ago, and in some ways, not very long at all. 
I live now in West Hollywood. And a couple of days ago, I was out for a walk. And just two and a half blocks from my house, I saw a Bronco. It was Gen 1, 1967 model, actually. And it would have been built like all Broncos at the Michigan Assembly Plant in Wayne. That's about 25 minutes from where the 12th Street uprisings began. So the guys that built that car would have been right in the middle of that riot. But here's where the story takes a weird turn. It was such a good-looking, quintessential, classic Bronco that I took a photo and posted it on my Instagram. And you know how Instagram works. I post a photo of a Bronco, and the next day I get suggestions to follow other people posting Bronco photos, including, and this was the highlight of my day, Broncos of Iceland. Now, I've seen Broncos in Malibu and Broncos in Michigan and Broncos in Mississippi. And heck, there's a lot of Broncos in East Tennessee, but Iceland? But there it was, 150 Broncos driving past frozen lakes and hot springs and volcanoes. So I posted a few comments, and the next thing you know, I'm on the phone with Oscar Samitson. Hey, I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> so this is his story. It started a few years ago. I, I started joining, joining all these Facebook groups and seeing uh, the community that surrounds uh, the early Bronco in, in, in the U.S. And it kind of woke me up to let them know that in Iceland we have, have thousands of Broncos. Ford actually has a very long history in Iceland. In 1926, a man named Svelton Adelson came to the country for a visit, fell in love, and stayed. Now, since Felton was from Detroit, he did what came naturally. He sold cars. That was the first Ford dealership in Iceland. Forty years later, that dealership debuted Ford's newest product. They started selling uh, Broncos uh, as soon as they came off the product line. Uh, and in newspapers here in Iceland, 1965, we saw lots of ads for the Bronco. At the time, Iceland had barely 200,000 people, so it wasn't a prime target for international distribution plans. Until 1967. You see, when the Bronco was launched in 1966, they sold 23,000 of them. The next year, sales fell to just 14,000. That's a 40% drop. So Ford had a bunch of extra Broncos and needed something to do with them. Now, I can imagine a conversation between two Ford execs that goes like, hey, we've got a bunch of Ford Broncos we can't sell. What should we do with them? Gee, I don't know. How about we put them on a boat and ship them to Iceland? Okay, sure. Okay, maybe it didn't go exactly that way. But regardless, in the face of these lagging sales, they found a solution. Ship them to Iceland. And it wasn't just a one-year thing either. The dealership sold five to 8,000 uh, Broncos during that time period, 66 to 77. And despite the harsh conditions, they persevered. I can drive here in, in Reykjavik. I can drive for 10 minutes and I can see five, six Broncos. Okay, and here I am in Hollywood getting excited when I see one. The Iceland affair will tell you something about the way Ford viewed the Bronco. When sales were soft, they didn't discontinue the product. They went and found a new market. 
The same resilience or persistence that Larry Weiss showed with the hot air balloon stunt was being displayed by the people in charge of the brand. But if it wasn't a dip in sales that killed it, what was it? Around the same time that those first Broncos were landing in Reykjavik, a young engineer named George Peterson was just graduating from college. Yeah, I joined Ford in uh, 1966 as a co-op engineering student from Florida State University. Uh, my first supervisor was named Paul Axelrad, and he had been one of the lead engineers in the development of the first-generation Bronco. Paul Axelrad, if you remember, was the guy who was knocked unconscious during field testing because the international scout he was in rolled down the side of a hill. So I got assigned to some small Bronco projects right at the beginning. You know, that was kind of a disappointment. I said, trucks? You know, I don't want to go to trucks. I want to go to cars and work on the Mustang and things like that. And even within trucks, Bronco was at the tail end of the pecking order, an underdog even in its own house. Well, in, in, um, in financial terms, I'd call it an asterisk. Um, you, uh, you, uh, you know, it really wasn't, wasn't a high, high, um, high visibility product. It was built on what I would call a stub line at the Michigan truck plant. These, these vehicles were kind of just pushed around on skids as they were assembling them by hand. It was an uninspiring start to his career. And then even that got interrupted. I was uh, you know, drafted in, uh, in 1970. After his tour of duty in Vietnam, he returned to Ford in 1972 to a slightly different role. Instead of design engineering, he was assigned to advanced engineering. Trying to come up with new ideas and new concepts in the truck universe that, uh, you know, that might be able to uh, resonate and uh, generate some sales. It was a much more freewheeling sort of place. I love that phrase. It was a freewheeling sort of place. Freewheeling perfectly describes the culture that Bronco was launched in. But the country was changing, and not in a good way for a rough-and-tumble truck. So safety regulations were coming in in the early 70s, and emissions regulations were starting in the early 70s. Engineering was trying to figure out how to get the emissions down, get the emissions under control. But they're trying to do things with throttle body fuel injected. They're trying to do things with uh, different kind of catalytic converters that you're having to make the engines cleaner and cleaner. So they had to sacrifice horsepower in order to meet the emissions requirements of the time. The horsepower went down, drivability was poor. Vehicles were stalling in the middle of intersections. I mean, it was, a, it was not a happy time, believe me. I think it's going to end with everybody changing their, their habits. Just start working now, otherwise we won't have time. We're going to be out of oil within a few years. It was announced today that gasless Sundays will go into effect as of next month. Those emission regulations that George was struggling with, those were set in response to something way bigger, an outside event that Ford could definitely not control the OPEC oil crisis. We're in an energy crisis now and will be for some time to come. All we can do is face it, recognize it, and meet the challenges it poses. Ours is a crisis... In 1970, the average American here in the American Midwest in Detroit was paying about 35 cents a gallon. That's Bailey Sasoy Moore again, our friendly neighborhood Detroit history expert. 
If you throw that in an inflation calculator, that's about $1.72 per gallon today's money, 2020. By 1974, OPEC has shut down and embargoed oil to the UK, America, Canada, and 11 other countries. Remember Econ 101? When supplies go down, prices go up. So by 1974, we're up to 55 cents a gallon, or in today's money, $2.53 a gallon. But they still have to commute into work. They still have to get the kids to school. So that budget has to strain to support it. So you see people cutting their food expenses. You see people cutting their entertainment expenses. And you see the automotive companies start thinking, hold on, hold on, hold on. If gas isn't cheap, we have to start designing cars that are fuel efficient. And, and what is, how is that affecting the car designs and things that are happening? Or do, does it at all? Oh my gosh, it affects it in, in massive ways. We start selling the economy car. And the economy car was not something anyone had previously aspired to. You drove an economy car because you had to, because you were broke. Now it's starting to become this symbol of, hey, we're on Team America. We're going to drive an economy car. The Bronco, in case you weren't sure, was not an economy car. Here's a truism that my dad used to tell me as a kid. In business or in life, no matter how cool or awesome you are, there will always be someone waiting in the wings to take your lunch. Think about it. Coke, Pepsi, Budweiser, Miller, DC Comics, Marvel, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones. But you get the point. There's always going to be a new kid on the block, especially for global car makers. As if a gas crisis, riots in the street, new government regulations weren't enough, now the Bronco has a direct challenger. Ford changed the landscape in 1966 markedly. They coasted along for a number of years, and, and you know, you started to see a few cracks in the veneer. That's Todd Zercher. He wrote the book on Bronco. Vehicles were becoming a little nicer through the 60s, of course, a few more creature comforts. And after four or five years, people start saying, well, the steering's kind of vague and, and the brakes aren't that great. And it's got a lot of squeaks and rattles and it's noisy. And, and, and so, you know, it was, it was four or five years into its, into its life cycle. And then in 1969, Chevy produces the Blazer. And the Blazer was based on their half-ton pickup line at the time so it was it was a much bigger vehicle than the bronco by like 1971 72 ford most certainly saw the handwriting on the wall as to where this market was going and the blazer really started to take off in sales to be specific blazer sales were double the broncos in 1972 now consider the dilemma that puts ford in in that year on the one hand, the oil crisis has people demanding more fuel-efficient vehicles. But then on the other hand, they're losing market share to a bigger, more powerful blazer. That's when George Peterson got his marching orders. Ford basically came to him and said, in so many words, copy the blazer. Ford was asking for a completely new truck to replace the Bronco. And what we're trying to do is, is find a way to quickly and cheaply convert a F-100 or F-150 at that time uh, into uh, a competitor to the uh, Blazer. 
what we're trying to do is, is find the sweet spot. And so we did the short horn, the mid horn, the long horn, and a wide horn. It was a you know really wide, had to have running lights on it, gigantic thing. Now they built prototypes of all four. Of those, the short horn showed the most promise. The way we did the short horn was we actually bought a blazer and chopped it up. We chopped a, uh, a blazer top in half and married that to the uh, back of the front of uh, F-Series cab. And then we also used a blazer uh, liftgate or tailgate uh, for it that had the drop glass in it. So it was very much a uh, kind of a half blazer, half F-Series product. The designers and engineers went back and forth trying to get the short horn right. And one of the keys there was to do an independent front suspension, which was based on the twin I-beam front suspension that uh, Ford had become known for on the F-Series pickup truck, having a, a, a independent front suspension. So how do you do an independent all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive front suspension? Now, you see, technical questions like that demanded constant redesigns. Tough to do when the outside factors are constantly changing. It's like flying a hot air balloon against the wind. Gas crisis, recession, Jimmy Carter—you um, know all of all of all of those things really were working against anything with a uh, a large V8 engine or even a large six-cylinder engine. And all this time, the original Bronco was still in production. Ford had originally planned when when they came and said, "Make something like the Chevy Blazer." Their their intentions were to come out for 1974, but 1974 became 1975. Then 1975 became 1976. And in all of this dithering, they still didn't have a product ready for market. Well, there were a lot of uh, factors at play in the world. Uh, We're still in Vietnam. 1974-75, there was a huge recession. Truck sales cratered. The market almost disappeared. And in the fall of 1976, the call came to George's office and said, Shut it down. The Shorthorn project is dead. So without anything in the pipeline to replace it, Ford just kept making the old Broncos. The little SUV that could took some shots from the global economy, the federal government, and from Chevrolet, of course. But it just kept rolling. Which brings me back to that first question. What killed the Bronco? Next on the list of suspects, complacency. The Broncos being produced in the mid-1970s were virtually identical to the mid-1960s. Well, they're dribbling out a few little improvements. But nothing that showed a real commitment to the brand. For 1973, they added power steering, which they probably should have done four years earlier. Uh, They added an option of an automatic transmission so you could finally get something behind the old three-on-the-tree manual transmission that was pretty crude. Now, the sales never completely cratered, but they didn't spike either. And then they also introduced a luxury trim package where they added carpeting, more color, more chrome, some fancy stripes on the outside. They were putting some gingerbread or, you know, a little bit of, to use the phrase, lipstick on a pig. When an automaker stops paying attention to a brand, it usually means it's on the way out. Until 1978. 
the half F-150, half Blazer that was codenamed Shorthorn never made it to the dealership lot, but it wasn't really a wasted exercise. Ford put everything they learned from it into the new Bronco. So in 1978, those Broncos were finally based on the Ford pickup series. So it basically looked like a Ford F-100 or a Ford F-150 with the back cut off and a fiberglass roof put on it. This was not a subtle change. This wasn't new lipstick and eyeshadow. This was full reconstructive surgery. The new Bronco was a completely different beast. It was a lot wider. It was a lot longer. It was taller. It was heavier. All the things that consumers were demanding. You got larger engines, so you had more power. It was wider, so you had more stability, better steering. It handled on the highway like a a modern car. You know, you could get to your destination and not be worn out because you've been driving for three hours in this noisy, boxy Bronco. It had air conditioning for the first time. It had a, you could get cruise control, a tilt steering wheel, more, much more comfortable seats. Of course, it was better insulated, so it was quieter. So it, so it really drove like a modern, a modern vehicle for the first time. This modern vehicle attracted modern customers. You know, they still promoted the outdoor lifestyle and so on, but, but it became much more of a suburban vehicle because it was so much more comfortable and people were using it much more as daily drivers and may have been their primary vehicle for their family. That new group of customers, families, was way bigger than the off-road crowd. Production in 1977 was about 30,000 units, and in 1978 it jumped to uh, 77,000 units, and then in 1979 it jumped to 109,000 units a year. We've all been here, right? You know, when your favorite indie band that's always had a cult following suddenly changes their style and... Now they're a hit on the billboard charts. 79 was the only year that the Broncos sold over 100,000 units. So that's huge. That's huge. And that was a, it was a home run for Ford. A decade and a half after its launch, the Bronco was a success on every level. They had finally built a rugged off-road vehicle you could also drive to the opera, and it was selling in record numbers. The question is, did it take too long to get there? Did those internal delays ultimately lead to the end of the Bronco? Or was it the events of June 17, 1994? Lightning fast and bizarre developments tonight in the O.J. Simpson story. In Chapter 3, we'll investigate that infamous police chase, the one that forever changed the way people viewed the brand. The football hero believed to be a passenger in that Ford Bronco. We'll also dig for the truth behind the Bronco 2, a vehicle that was labeled ugly and dogged by safety allegations. That's next on Bring Back Bronco, The Untold Story. I'm Sonarian Glenton. Now be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen.